Good morning, church. So today's scripture reading is going to be Colossians 2, 8 through 10. 8 through 10. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. This is the living word of God for us today. Thank you very much, Hannah. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to that passage that she just read. If you're new to fellowship, uh, the way we teach the Bible is we typically pick a book. In this case, it's Colossians, and we start in verse 1 of chapter 1, and we go through the end just explaining it as we go. So these are the verses that we're going to cover this morning, three verses. Uh, We're in chapter 2. There's four chapters in Colossians. We started back in the fall, took a break for Advent, and we're back in it. We gave these out at the beginning of the series. If you didn't get one, we don't have any more. They're the ESV Scripture Journal, but you can order them online. I'd encourage you to do so because there's lots of space for note-taking, and we're going to be taking some notes in this. Now, you don't have to have one, obviously. You can use your own Bible. I encourage people to mark up their Bible, mark up the journal if you have it. We're going to be doing that together a little bit today and take notes and however you want to do that. Um, What I love about teaching the Bible, especially the way that we teach it here at Fellowship, is it gives us a chance to talk about things that matter in life. Now, I say that because I believe, is a deep conviction that I hold, all theology is practical. Some of you are thinking, oh, I don't agree with that. Theology is the opposite of practical. Theology is just academic and theoretical, what have you. Here's what I'd say about that. Think about all the most important questions in life that drive your behavior. They're theological questions. Questions like this, who am I and what am I doing here? Who is God? Is there a God? And what is he like? And what does he think of me? Questions like, where will I find life? Like, where where is fullness of life found? These are all theological questions. And it's these kinds of questions that will drive everything you do. Theology is very, very practical because what you believe shapes everything you do. We talk a lot at Fellowship about the heart. In the Bible, the heart is it's your internal self. It's not just the seat of your emotions. It's your thinking is considered to take place in your heart from a biblical perspective, your feelings, your desires, your choices. It's all of you inside. It's your heart as the Bible describes it. What's interesting about the connection between your thoughts and your choices are that your, whatever you believe, whatever you think, the patterns that you come, th- those will eventually play themselves out in the choices that you make and how to live your life give you a little illustration of this. Not too long ago, uh, one, one of our daughters, who will remain anonymous for the sake of this story because I didn't have a chance to talk to her about it, is that uh, she had a hard day at school. She came home and uh, she just said uh, something happened today and you know, she wouldn't want to go into the details, but it was something that she really was, was weighing on her. She was carrying a lot and she said, in fact, I was so embarrassed by this, what had happened, that she said, I put my hood up at recess And I didn't want anyone to see me. I just walked around the playground with my hood up the whole time. (laughs) Any of us that are parents in the room, it's just, it's like, oh, the sadness of thinking about your little girl on the playground with a hood over her head. And uh, I had a chance to talk to her about what happened that night as I was tucking her in bed. And, you know, by God's grace, you know, he doesn't always give you these moments, but I was able to ask her some questions and then share some truth with her. And you could just see her countenance change as she began to believe what I was saying. And uh, her countenance shifted from this like embarrassed shame to just sort of like 
smile. And the key, word, key thing she said to me was she looked up and she said, you mean I've been worried about nothing? And I said, yes. And she said, well, then can we talk about Shopkins? <laughs> For those of you that don't know, Shopkins are these little bitty, trivial little plastic things. Maybe they're rubber, I don't know. The point is, to go from this heavy, weighted thing, bearing her down, she didn't want to even go to school again the next day. Can we talk about Shopkins? What had shifted? Only her mind, only the way she was thinking about this. Reminds me of what Paul wrote in Romans 12. Don't be conformed to the patterns of the world, but be transformed. How are we to be transformed? By the renewing of our mind. By the renewing of our mind. So now we get to today's text, also written by Paul. And here's what he's saying in the text that Hannah just read. Guard your thinking. Be careful what you believe. Be careful what goes into your mind because there's so much at stake. Your thinking really matters. What you believe really matters. Now, let me reread the text and then I want to unpack it for you and then we'll apply it. Verse eight of chapter two. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. We've done this throughout our study. Uh, If you have a pen or pencil, draw a box around the direct references to Jesus in this text. We'll put it on the screen. It'll be there right at the bottom. So there's the word Christ in in verse eight. There's him in verse nine, which is referencing to Jesus. And then if you flip the page over to page uh, verse 10, there's another him. So there are three direct references to Jesus. Why do we keep doing this? Because you're gonna find, I mean, scores of them in this book. It's a short book, and yet almost every verse Almost every verse is referencing Jesus Christ. It is a Christocentric or Christ-centered letter, maybe the most Christ-centered of all of Paul's letters. Now now that we've done that, I want you to go back to verse 8, and I want you to look at this first phrase. See to it that no one takes you captive. That's kind of a dramatic way to begin, isn't it? Like, don't be taken prisoner. And that's exactly what Paul's going after. He's coming at and saying, listen, there is something out there that if you're not careful will encapture you, that will enslave you and drag you back into slavery. Now, he had already told us back in uh, chapter one, verse 13, that you've been rescued. So 1.13 says, you know, God's delivered us from a dark domain, the domain of darkness, and he's transferred us to a new kingdom the kingdom of his beloved son. So it's like a SEAL Team 6 rescue operation. You know, Jesus came in, he rescued you from this you know, prisoner of war here to the dark forces, and now you've been transferred into a kingdom of light. However, Paul in chapter two is essentially saying, see to it that you're not taken captive. In other words, you're still living in enemy territory in essence until Jesus comes back. So see to it that you're not recaptured and taken back to the prisoner of war camp. Now, what in the world could be so dangerous that would capture us? Captured by, look back at the text, philosophy, really, and empty deceit. How is it that philosophy could enslave us or capture us or drag us back uh, to be prisoners again? Well, it's the only time in scripture where the word philosophy shows up. That's interesting in and of itself. That surprised me when I researched this text. Uh, You may know philosophy is a Greek word that we just imported straight into English. It's two parts. Philo is love. Sophia is wisdom. 
So it's the love of wisdom. Why would Paul say, don't be taken captured, or don't be taken captive, rather, by the love of wisdom? Doesn't the Bible elevate wisdom to a very high level? Absolutely. We've talked about that in, in this room even recently. Paul's not talking about, hey, don't love wisdom. Paul's also not talking about the kind of academic philosophy that you might have taken in, in college or high school or read philosophy books. That, that's essentially a, a related but a different thing. Paul's definition of philosophy in this context has to do with all the different worldviews, all the different spiritualities, all the different worships of various gods that were in his culture. Uh, the first century, when and where Paul was writing, was very similar to ours, and it was a place where everybody had their own idea of God, of spirituality, of power, of what, what essentially leads you to life. There were all these ideas. All, everybody was trying to make sense of the world and all these different uh, philosophies and gods. You know, just think about the Roman gods, and, you know, the, the, the pantheon of gods and the Greek gods. And then there were all the, the Greek debates. And you know, Paul gets into it a little bit when he goes to Athens on Mars Hill and he's like talking to all these philosophers. And he's saying, listen, he's not saying philosophy as we know it is bad. He's saying there's a type of philosophy that can take you captive. What kind of philosophy is it? The kind that's empty and deceiving. Those are the very next words. Philosophy and empty deceit. Now, let me explain it this way. I think the way that Paul is referring to philosophy is any kind of worldview or strategy that you believe will give you fullness of life. Any worldview or strategy you believe will lead you to fullness of life. And there's all kinds of options out there. And there were in Paul's day. Oh, follow this God, and you know, he'll bless you with that. Follow that God, and she'll bless you with this. Just believe in these truths and this philosophy, and your life will have meaning, your life will have purpose. Where whatever worldview or life strategy you believe will lead you to fullness of life. Paul's saying, be careful, because a lot of those things they promise life and they're actually empty. They promise fullness, but what you get is empty. What you get is emptiness, and that's what makes them deceptive. So he says, empty deceit. The empty is because they don't deliver what they promise. The deceit is you've been fooled. They have overpromised and underdelivered. Therefore, in a sense, it's a trick. Paul's saying all that stuff out there, if it's apart from Christ, it's not going to give what it promises. All these ideas, all these empty philosophies, all these worldviews apart from Christ are ultimately empty and they're ultimately deceitful. Now, right after that, he goes on to explain the origin of these empty and deceitful thoughts, these origin of these philosophies. Um, it's interesting where he goes with this. He, give, he names two places where they're from, where these philosophies are from, and one place where they're not. So the two places where they're from, keep looking at verse eight with me, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Those are the two places. The one place they're not from is Jesus Christ, not according to Christ. Let's talk about each of these. We'll start with human tradition. So one place where these empty, deceitful philosophies come from is from human tradition. It's just stuff that's made up by human imagination and then passed on from person to person. No divine origin, no revelation from God, just purely human speculation. There's an awful lot of that out there, isn't it? I was reminded uh, as I was preparing this, I was like, what are some of the um, human tradition things that I believe? And I thought of a really silly one. Um, my grandma taught me that the way to get rid of hiccups was you, uh, let me think if I can remember this right, you hold your nose, you turn your head upside down, and you drink a cup of water. 
you know? And I'm telling you, like, all throughout high school, I was doing that, you know? I was like, even at school, you know, I was like going to the bathroom and plugging my nose and trying to drink the thing upside down. I don't even know how I did that. There was some trick to it that I learned. Anyway, I don't think that ever got rid of my hiccups. But if something is passed along enough times by the right number of people, it has the ring of truth. There's a lot of empty, deceiving philosophies that just have their origin in human tradition. Purely human speculation. All right, second place that these empty and deceitful philosophies come from, he goes on to say, according to the elemental spirits of the world. So first, human tradition. Next, elemental spirits. It just got a little weird. What in the world are the elemental spirits of the world? Uh, One thing I always encourage uh, you to do in Bible study is to read multiple English translations because, you know, sometimes we forget we're reading a translation of a Greek or a Hebrew text. And every translation, the translator has to make some interpretational decisions when they translate that. So, you know, uh, well, I won't go down that path, but some of the translations say elemental spirits. Some say, you know, fundamental particles, all kinds of different translations on this one. That is a clue that there's some difficult Greek underneath, that there's not a strong consensus on how to translate it. And that's the case. And you know, I spent a long time digging into this this week, and I want to summarize what I found. I believe, and, and most commentators agree with this, that the way the ESV translates it is, is pretty accurate. Elemental spirits. And a lot of other translations use that same thing too. Elemental in the Greek has this idea of the fundamental or the smallest or the simplest. So it's kind of like the ABCs. Okay, that's the elemental. Then you have spirits. Now the word spirits is not exactly directly in there, but it's a phrase that Paul uses. This won't translate from the Greek, but it's the elemental spirits that Paul talks about. And what he's referencing there is he's talking about the lower spiritual beings. He's talking about, I believe, the same beings he's already referenced in chapter 1, verse 13, when he says the domain of darkness. The same beings he references three verses later in chapter 1, 16, when he says thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. The same powers and forces he's going to reference in chapter 2, verse 15, which is just a few verses past our text this morning when he says rulers and authorities. And then again in, chap- in verse 20 of chapter two, he's gonna mention again, elemental spirits. It's the same thing over and over. He's saying there are demonic forces, there are evil spiritual forces. They're lesser, they're lower, they're elemental, but they're real nonetheless. Now, I know this kind of weirds us out a little bit. We start talking about spiritual beings. Um, I think in our, in our biblical worldview, we, we falsely sometimes think that a biblical worldview means you believe in, in one spiritual being. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches there is one almighty creator, God. That God also made other spiritual beings. Angels who are literal translation, messengers, messengers of God, servants of God, and fallen angels, demons, who were angels who are now in rebellion against God. And they're not all the same. There's different types and forms and and even classes of spiritual beings. I know this sounds like I just went down some crazy path. I'm just teaching you what's in your Bible. Now, C.S. Lewis said something that I've always found helpful. C.S. Lewis, y'all, most of you know, brilliant writer, major intellect, but he wrote a decent amount about spiritual beings, 
part of his writing. Screwtape Letters probably is his best-known work as it relates to this. Lewis made this comment. He said, there are two dangers when talking about the spiritual realm. One is overemphasizing it, and the other is ignoring it. We don't want to go down either of those paths. We don't want to say there's a, there's a demon behind every bush. Okay, that's not the point. You know, you don't have to go around like, oh, well, there's, there's a, my, you know, my DVD player's not working. I'm going to cast out the demon from that. No, 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 that's not, not, not where Paul would go. On the other hand, we can't go in around just pretending that there's not deeper spiritualities, some of which are dark. Jesus talked about it a lot. Paul talks about it a lot. Already here in, in two chapters or one and a half chapters in our study so far, he's already referenced it several times. Now, why do I, I go down this path? I want you to see something. What I believe Paul is saying in verse 8, so far we're not even to 9 and 10, just verse 8. He's saying, see to it that you're not taken captive by these empty ways of thinking, some of which are purely human tradition, human speculation, but some of which actually have a darker origin. And if you pull back the curtain, you pull back the veil, there is something less than human behind some of these ones. Something, I would add, that has no intention of filling you, no intention of giving you life, only intention in deceiving you and leaving you empty, only intention of robbing you and stealing from you. Now, can you tell the difference between the two, the, empty, the, uh, the human tradition ones and the ones that are from the elemental spirits? I think a lot of times it's, it's one and the same. <clears throat> Underneath the human tradition, there's something else going on. Now, I love the fact that it's this very moment that Jesus contrasts these things, these philosophies, empty, deceitful, with Jesus Christ. So remember, he said it's, these empty philosophies are according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and then he goes, major contrast, and not according to Christ. This is the hinge point in our text. Everything before, he's saying, stay away from that. It's empty. It's deceitful. It won't fill you. Now he's going to talk about Jesus and everything after what he says is all about, this is what you really want. This is what really will fill you. So now let's look at verse 9 and 10. He continues the thought. For in him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Verse 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So now you start to see Paul's continuous thought from verse eight through verse 10. Here's what he's saying. Be careful, be mindful, be on guard. There's all these ways of thinking, all these worldviews out there that are empty and hollow and deceiving. They ultimately have their origin in dark places, some of them. In contrast to all that, your faith, Christian, is rooted in something solid, your faith is rooted not in human tradition, not in the elemental spirits, but in Christ, the fullness of the spirit, the fullness of God himself in bodily form. And through faith in Christ, you've been filled. You're not empty, you're full. So in these last two verses, you start to see this contrast emerge. It's a major theme in our text. The contrast is between empty and full. Empty and full. Now, it might help you to mark this in your text so it'll really jump out to you. So I want to encourage you to do that. We'll put it on the screen as well if you want to follow along. Circle the word empty in verse 8. Circle the word fullness in verse 9. And circle the word filled in verse 10. 
Because those are all the words that Paul's using to kind of develop this contrasting theme of empty and full. So verse eight, empty, verse nine, fullness, verse 10, filled. Paul's saying, all those other philosophies are ultimately empty, but Jesus Christ is the fullness of God and in him you've been filled. Paul is so smart. What he's doing is he's tapping into the desire of every human being to be filled. That he's tapping into the deepest desire, the deepest longing of every human being is fullness of life. I don't know about you, but I want to live. I want to be alive, fully alive. I don't want to just have life. I want to have as much of life as I can. I think this is the human instinct, and Paul knows this. And he's saying there's one place you're going to find fullness. There's one philosophy, if you want to think of it that way. There's one worldview, if you want to think of it that way. There's, there's one theology, think of it that way, where you're going to find fullness. Do you know where it is? In Christ. Not in any other fine-sounding argument or empty philosophy or worldview or way of thinking because compared to Jesus, all that is empty. All that's deceptive. But in Jesus' fullness. You got that? If you understand that, you understand the text. All right. Now let's talk about Jesus for a minute. Um, where do you think Paul got his theology from? Jesus. All right? The teachings of Jesus. Paul didn't know Jesus in the flesh. Well, I should say until post-resurrection when Jesus appeared to Paul and changed his life. But Paul had spent lots of time with Peter and the other disciples, and he was very intimate and familiar with all the teachings of Jesus. And so I think Paul may have had John 10.10 in mind. He wouldn't have known it as John 10.10 at that time, but it would have been, been shared. Oh yeah, this one time Jesus said this. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus said. But I have come so you may have life and have it to the full. Paul's making the same contrast that Jesus made. Paul's saying, there is, there's an enemy, and Jesus was saying this too, there was an enemy that only desires to rob you, that only desires to steal from you. Guys, a thief does not sneak in your house and fill your house with good stuff. He sneaks in and he takes stuff away. So you go downstairs and you open your electronics cabinet and it's empty. You open your jewelry box and it's empty. You open your safe where you stored your emergency cash and it's empty. See, he's made it empty. Jesus says, that's what the thief does. I've come for life. I've come to fill. I've come to give, not to take. So here's Paul's big idea. He's building off of what Jesus said. He's building off of you know, his own theology, you know, raised as a Hebrew and then converted to Christianity and spent years studying. And Here's what Paul is saying in, in this text. Big idea. Do not exchange the fullness of life that is yours in Christ for empty ways of thinking. That's not a good trade. If you're a believer in Jesus, it means you're in Christ, you've been filled. Be on your guard that you would be robbed. I don't think he's talking about losing your salvation. He's talking about in Jesus, the offer on the table is life, truth, reality, something solid you can put your weight on. There's a lot of emptiness out there. There's a lot of deception out there that would desire to rob those things from you. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time on application. We're going to cover some ground here because this got me thinking, right? If the big idea is, you know, 
Don't exchange fullness of life in Jesus Christ for empty ways of thinking. What are the empty ways of thinking in our culture, in our society, that might want to steal from us? And so, man, uh, how much time we have? Well, there's a game coming, so not a whole lot. But I want to cover two. Like, we could cover 100 because we live in a culture like Paul's. I mean, go to Amazon.com or go in Barnes & Noble and just type in um, how to have a fulfilling life or spirituality or self-help. You're going to get 800,000 million kinds of hits, probably. And, and Paul's saying there's all, all this empty, all that's de- deceptive. Now, I want to boil it down to two ways of thinking, two philosophies of our day that I think are so prevalent, prevalent and that needs, need attention, need our attention. And they match up with our text this morning. The first one I want to talk about is relativism. The philosophy of relativism. Now, it's a familiar word, but let me define it so we're all on the same page. And you're going to see this is like right where we are right now in, in our culture. The Oxford Dictionary defines relativism as the doctrine. It's an interesting choice of words. The doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to culture, society, or historical context and are not absolute. If I could shorten that a little bit. Relativism is the doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality are not absolute. Now, some of you are thinking, well, this is a tricky one, and I'll I'll agree with you. It's a tricky one because there's a part of this that has a kernel of truth in it. Here's what I mean. It is absolutely true that depending on how you were raised, where you grew up, what your parents taught you, the culture that you lived in, et cetera, you're going to believe more than likely different things depending on where you grew up. This person grew up over here, exposed to this culture, teaching of his parents and schools, et cetera. He's going to more than likely believe this thing. This person grew up in this culture, going to more than likely believe this thing. Doesn't that mean that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to culture, society, or historical context? There's a kernel of truth in that, but where Relativism goes so far is when it, it, too far is when it says that actually because of that that knowledge, truth, and morality are not absolute. What essentially relativism is saying is there is no standard, there is no higher rubric, there is no anything we can appeal to to sort of decide. There is no judge. Actually, so therefore, it's all relative. I like the way D. Michael Lindsay put it. He's the president of. Gordon College, a Christian college in Boston area. He wrote this, the problem is not that Americans don't believe in anything, but that they believe in everything. And some of you might think, well, why is that a problem? You know, if this, is, this can be right and this can be true for you. And, and this can be right and this can be true for you. And if you're both happy, what, why is there a problem? Listen, believing in everything actually means you don't believe in anything. Believing in everything basically says, well, there's, there's not one that's superior to the other. And I, I just want you to hear this with, with love and care, but also concern from my heart. What Paul is saying in Colossians over and over and over is Jesus is not one of many. Jesus is not one of many. He is unique. He is above He is God. He is fullness. He is life. Paul keeps saying these dramatic statements about Jesus. It's why the the center of all things is the whole study. I mean, think about the Colossians Creed. This is why we keep saying this Colossians Creed in our worship service. We want this to drill down in your your, your theology, in your head. He he, He is above all. He's the firstborn of all creation. By him, for him, through him, all things were made. He is the head 
of the body, the church. He is the firstborn of creation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Even in today's text in verse 10, Paul says he's the head of all rule and authority. Guys, if someone's the head of all rule and authority, he is not one among many. Now, part of the Christian confession, and this is where I'm going to push a few of you maybe, and, and, and that's okay because I really care about you. Part of the Christian confession is believing that. So you, if you call yourself a Christian, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm finding fullness in Jesus, but, but I, I, I think you, you're finding fullness in somewhere else. Great. I want you to know that, that that's not what Christianity teaches. I want you to know that Christianity, part of the creed, part of the Christian worldview is believing that Jesus is entirely unique, that he actually is God, like singular, capital G, God. All the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus Christ. That's coming right here from Colossians chapter two. Now, I, can I say this as well? And I think this will help a lot of you. Believing that, believing that Jesus is above all, that he is unique, that he is God, that he is the only way, all those things that are part of Christian faith, believing that does not mean that you think you're smarter than everybody else or that you think you're better than everybody else or you think you're superior to everybody else. It doesn't mean that. It definitely doesn't have to. In fact, actually following Jesus will always lead you to humility and service, not pride and power. So we dare not wield our truth like it's some big stick to beat culture with. That's not how Jesus went about now, here's what's amazing about Jesus, okay? Jesus is awesome. Jesus combined an, an incredible rock-solid conviction of truth. He did not give an inch on truth claims. And he combined an incredible servant-minded, humble attitude. It's that combination of truth and humble service that will change the world because the world does not know what to do with it. Our world doesn't have category for those things. Didn't have category for it 2,000 years ago either. We are followers of Jesus. We are called to be truth tellers, have a rock solid conviction of truth. We're also called to be humble servants. We're called to follow Jesus. I'll say more about pluralism in a few minutes. I want to go to one more of the time I have left. I want to talk about what I have come to call selfism. That might be a new term for you, but you'll recognize the concept. Maybe not the word, but you'll recognize the concept. Selfism, according to uh, David Garland, a Bible scholar, selfism makes the self God and makes life's ultimate purpose to reach the self's fullest potential and to satisfy the self's utmost desires. Selfism makes the self God. Boy, does that sound relevant to our day. This is the cultural soil we're planted in. Um, watch any advertisement on TV and, and, or, or read a magazine or a blog, and more than likely than not, you're going to find selfism as the underlying uh, matrix philosophy that everything else is built on. I've gotten a kick out of those um, slow-fee commercials for the iPhone. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. It's apparently now the iPhone has a, a better camera up, up front, the newest iPhone, that it can take a slow-motion video of you, you know, like the selfie. So they, they, the slow-motion selfie, they call it the slow-fee. I thought that was funny. Now, either it's not funny or you've heard it before, but I was watching that one where that guy does this, you know, he's like shaking his head. And this, anyway, you have to watch it. And I was thinking to myself, is rarely this obvious, but this is it. You know, selfism. It's like, now you can take a 
video of yourself in slow motion to see all the glorious details. This particular philosophy of, of selfism is really me. I mean, even the, the iPhone is named after this, right? Now, I own one. I'm not trying to overly pick on Apple, but this particular philosophy is so ingrained in our cultural fabric that it's not even questioned anymore. Self-fulfillment is an assumed right. Now, selfism is also a little bit tricky, kind of like relativism had a kernel of truth. Selfism has a kernel of truth as well. You might ask it this way, well, shouldn't I want to reach my full potential? Rob, didn't you say earlier that Jesus said he came so I might have life and have it to the fullest? Like, should I not want to be full? The key is the first part of the description I read to you earlier. Selfism makes the self God. Well, what does that mean? How do I know if I'm making the self God or if I just like burritos because they're delicious, you know? Well, think of it this way. The question is, who or what has ruling authority over your life? Who or what has ruling authority over your life? If self-fulfillment, if your own hunger and your own thirst and your own lust and your own desire is the end to which everybody else has to bow and everything else has to bow, then it is certainly a God for you. It is certainly an idol, a false idol. I like the way Garland put it. He said, those who fill themselves only with themselves remain empty. Man, that's, I've tasted that truth, guys. That is true. I want you to see how Jesus pushed directly into selfism. And I share with you how, how Jesus, the claims of Jesus push into relativism. Let me show you how the claims of Jesus push into selfism. In Matthew 16 and many other places, Jesus says something like this. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and while doing so forfeit their own soul? Jesus said in another place, he said that uh, if anyone wants to be the leader, he has to be the servant. If Jesus over and over, he's another place, he says, listen, if you want to find life, you have to be like a seed that falls to the ground and dies, and then there from life comes out. You see how countercultural Jesus' teaching is? He's pushing against this idea that it's all about you. He's pushing against the idea that the way to life is just to fill yourself. You say, no, 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 you lay your life down. Part of what it means to be a Christian, I said earlier, part of what it means to be a Christian is to say Jesus above, above all. It's not relativism. It's Jesus is king. And part of what it means to be a Christian is to be willing to say, and that means Jesus above me. Jesus above all and Jesus above me. See, the claims of Christ push against relativism, push against selfism. I want to share one more thing with you and then we'll wrap up. I, I think the antidote for us, you know, we, we need to be, we need to get an immunization, so to speak, because we're out there in a culture that's just filled with all this empty, dece deceiving philosophies. And I think the, the antidote, so to speak, is actually worship. It's worshiping Jesus. It's worshiping the right thing. Remember that we're all worshipers, whether you're religious or not, you're worshiping something. Uh, so I'm not just talking about singing songs to Jesus or coming to a worship service in a church. I'm talking about the fundamental parts of you that we're hardwired to worship. We can't help worshiping. We're like moths drawn to light whenever we see something good, whenever we see something glorious or valuable. Worship comes from the old English word worthship. It simply means ascribing worth or value to something. So, you know, a bunch of us are going to be doing that at two o'clock, hopefully, you know. Now, 
It turns out that human beings are very natural at this. And in fact, a, a secular novelist named David Foster Wallace picked up on this. And in a commencement address in 2005, he was addressing the graduating class of Kenyon College in Ohio. He talked about worship. But listen to how he frames worship. There's a lot of truth to what he's saying. He says, here's something that's weird but true. I like the way he starts that. <laughs> weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. The compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or a spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you will never feel you have enough. It is the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. A lot of truth in that. Three years after he gave that address, David Foster Wallace took his own life after a long battle with depression. What would Paul say to his commencement address? What might Paul say in response and reflection to what David Foster Wallace said about worship? I think Paul would say, you identified the correct problem, but you missed the solution. You missed the fact that there is one and only one who is worthy of worship because there is only one who is above all things. There is only one who is the fullness of deity. There's only one who's actually worthy of worth-ship. For in him, Paul wrote, all the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. The antidote is worship the right one. Worship Jesus. Put the full weight of your search for fullness, 